Welcome to the next episode of Dadding Black Kids with Adelric McCain and Gregory Peters, a podcast about fatherhood, black children, and the commitment to liberation within today's public schools. It is recording, yes. All right. All right. Uh, my name is Adelric McCain. I um, am the director of equity and national impact at the Network for College Success at the University of Chicago. Um, and I am a lifelong professional educator. Uh, prior to this role, I was a classroom teacher for 12 years. Um but of all the roles and titles that I like to talk about, I am the proud father of uh, Ella McCain, um, a beautiful seven-year-old who is trying to figure out this 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 world. And I am looking forward to this opportunity to talk with people who I absolutely adore and people who also have been on certain journeys with me in my own explorations of all of my different roles and different identity around what does it mean to be raising a Black child in this uh, current climate, both socially, politically, raising a student, a, 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 a child who's in a public school um, in Illinois, in the, in the suburbs of Oak Park. And I'm hoping that the conversations go beyond um, what typical conversations that you might have with parents, which is just kind of like, oh, these kids and all oh, that, 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 that such and such. It's like, no, like, let's really elevate the discourse and let's elevate the conversation to places that explore um possibilities that explore things that maybe have not been really talked talked about and discussed. Um, I'm also hoping that beyond just the co-construction of new ideas, I'm also kind of hoping for us to really do some interrogation about what we're experiencing as as fathers. Um, there's not a lot of spaces for men to talk about what does it mean to be and play in the role of identity as a father. Yeah. Thanks, Adela. Uh My name is Greg Peters. I'm the director of the San Francisco Coalition of Essential Small Schools, uh, also a lifelong educator, learner. Um, and I'm excited about this, these conversations that actually have been taking place for over a year now. And um, Adelric and I, you and I both share this, this proud identity as parents or dads, specifically of black children. And we have some critical differences. And the, the big difference that has come up in how we support each other over this past year plus has been that how I experienced this role in my skin, living in the white, and you know, as a as a white man of a black who's a dad of a black child, really does make a difference. And, or should I say, really is different. And one of the things that's been amazing is our phone calls have predominantly over these years been professional and personal and supportive of each other. And then when we were fortunate enough to be able to adopt our beautiful son you know, eight-year-old Devon, and we started to check in on family matters, and we had really, for me, um, life-changing conversations or life-directing conversations about our experiences, the commonalities and the differences. You would often say, other people need to hear this. 
And so I actually don't go into these conversations with much of an agenda other than for you and I to continue to support each other and you and I to continue to build um, success for our children and to do that publicly because I'm trusting you when you say our communities would benefit from these conversations. And so I'm totally excited about bringing this to a public forum and um, feeling a bit vulnerable. And that's okay. That's just part of it. Absolutely. Um, I really appreciate uh, what you just said, because um, I don't think there's enough space for us to be vulnerable. Um, I think there's a lot of um, critique and assessment of how we show up and it's uh, as fathers. And, um, uh, and, and this is hard. It's, it, there's no, there's no playbook, right? There's no blueprint. Um, and so like the, the idea that we can actually have a space of vulnerability is actually pretty, it, it, it's it, 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 not just exciting, but it's also just it, it, it feeds me. It makes me feel like, OK, this is a, uh, let's continue these conversations. And I think there will be a gift from other people, because, again, I don't think there's a lot of spaces out there for um, men to talk this way. Yeah. Yeah. I believe you. I mean, and, you know, again, our family is, a you know, we have all different kinds of families in, in our family. Devon has two dads. And I know one of the things that my husband, Gary, struggles with is that there aren't as many spaces for this type of uh, bonding, community support, and quite frankly, affinity. And so, in the in the role, yeah, yeah. yeah. So we're we're excited about this, and it's still in formation. We don't even know what we're going to call this. And in looking at um, how you know podcasts, they're saying, "Oh, you've got to figure out what your name is, what the video, what the visual is going to be." And so, I don't know. Maybe we could play a couple minutes with what this could be called, and if anybody actually gets a chance to listen to this and they have ideas before a decision is made. Maybe there's some idea out in the universe too. So have you thought it all about like what we might call this space? Oh man. I, I, you know, the, the question to me is that I no no, I have not really thought about what you call it, but I wonder if, if, if we want to insert, cause you know, in our conversation, there's always this strong element of humor along with a lot of the more serious issues that we're discussing. Yeah. There's always this element of humor. So, I mean, we could definitely go, you know, the, 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 the humorous approach of like, um, you know, what the are we doing? <laughs> like, you know, uh. <laughs> um, or to, to, to something that's a little bit more grounded in what we're trying to really, really, uh, um, push forward in the conversation, which is about, you know, Critical analysis of what our, what what our, our our young people are, our young children are experiencing. Yeah, the only thing about the what what the hell are we doing or what the f are we doing piece is for me that um, I I think what we're learning or what I'm learning is even in community of just two people, we're finding wisdom and experience. So I don't want to mm. downplay that the answers are in our communities, that we just need to form community around supporting our black children. I love that. Yeah. I love that. I love that. Yeah, I was going to the literal piece. I was really reductionist. And when I was thinking about it, I was like, dadding black kids. <laughs> oh, yes. That's right there. <laughs> uh, like, <laughs> you, when you say literal and right to the middle, that's it. That, that strikes it right there. That's <laughs> a critical analysis piece, too. I want us to let's sit with this. That's really, yeah. Really, because that 
might be simplistic in its expression, but has so many layers of complexities in its actual what we would be diving in. Like that right there. Wow. Yeah. 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 Like and, that. I'm, that. That's a gift. Like in itself. Like right. Like just to name. Here's a conversation about dadding black kids. Yeah. Yeah. Because that's because that's always what we're talking about. We're talking about the role we play, mm-hmm. and 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 the. the in this society, the absolute unique variable of being a child, in particular in public school, in black skin. Yes. You know, it's a game changer for our stories all the time. Always, always. It's a consistent. And the thing, and, and the thing is, um, we are both educators. Mm, mm. But what, even what I'm finding right now currently, that all of the lessons as being 12 years in front of the classroom. And I want to say this, I don't say this often, but from the feedback that I got from the students in my communities, I wasn't a bad teacher either. I was actually pretty good. That means nothing (laughs) right now when I am trying to be both parent and teacher and I'm understanding that I can't be both. I have to only be dad. And that means something different when I still have the express role of supporting your education during this time. Yeah. So let's go there. Let's go there because I don't want to oversimplify that dilemma right now. And there's an example where America needs to be listening or engaging in these conversations because I think we're making a giant mistake right now where we're assuming the status quo is happening with all of this, that all we did is move the classroom to the house. And there's so much underneath this. There's so much. So maybe maybe we can each start by saying a little bit about how was our child experiencing school then and how is our child experiencing school now? And I know that the conversation is born out of just saying those two reflections will go. We could do many, many, many podcasts for. So we'll see where, where we get until Skype says time's up. <laughs> Let's do it. Let's do it. Let's do it. I mean, this what you just painted right there was a because it's raining here right now. But like I just pictured a nice, brilliant day, sunny day, a big pool and a diving board and just saying, jump on in. Come on, let's go. <laughs> Excellent. Excellent. <laughs> All right. Do you want me to begin or would you like to begin? Oh, either one. It doesn't matter. I mean. You, you, okay. you decide. You decide who goes first. You, you go. I started the, the the introduction. You start. You start with what 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 what's past and present for <laughs> Bond. <laughs> this felt, all right. I just felt like, let's get ready. Oh, cool. All right. So I think I could sum up past by saying school has not, does not, and was not designed for Devon. I'm clear about that. So we knew that already as educators. I knew even when, you know, even before I met Devon, I knew that was true for our black children, in particular our black boys. And then to see um, it play out under our nose was amazing, was amazing. Um, This is, Devon is in his third school by our choice. The first two schools um, we chose, uh, one was private, one was charter. The one we're in now is a traditional Um, uh, district school. All of these schools have things about them that are admirable, which is why we've chosen them. And all of them have not worked for Devon. The only ones who are working for Devon are, well, first of all, no one's working for Devon more than Devon. And so his ability to 
face and sustain and school is on his shoulders. Like, like the, any success is, is because he is taking up the brunt of the work. The first two schools explicitly said that they focused on black boys and or children with trauma. Both are um, identifiers of, of D. And yet what we found was that their intentions were there, but their practice wasn't. And their capacity to work with us and partner with us wasn't there as well. So these were really good schools that we were not going to experience success and there wasn't, we couldn't find a path to success. And this most recent school is a school also that has not worked for Devon. And yet what they have is the humility to say, we can't do this alone and are open to partnership where we've brought in a team that works with us and doesn't focus on what Devon needs to do differently, but how school needs to be differently. And through that, while it continues to be a struggle, um, we have found um, at least the potential pathways to success. So that's why we've been there. It's been an ongoing and absolute journey. Um, I will also say that we have never... So Gary, my, my husband, is, is Mexican-American. I am white. And we have never, ever ignored or taken for granted that perhaps, if not definitely, many of the opportunities that we are fighting for are able to even get traction because of my identity and perhaps Gary's identity, even though he's a person of color, is not a black man, et cetera. And, so, and that's been a big piece of our conversations as well. So when, and, and in the background, we've always said, well, homeschooling might have to be an option someday. Like we, we're always assessing the, the, the payoff of socialization in school versus the harm. We're always assessing that. So when this happened, when COVID-19 happened, we thought, well, we'll get to experience a little bit of what it might look like. And we took a, we took a lot for granted around that. Like this was not a choice to homeschool. This was an abrupt shift of ritual it was an abrupt transition, and it happened um, not only for everybody, but for children like Dee, whose trauma is related to relationships, is related to consistency and ritual and transition, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. So when <clears throat> and, and part of the dilemma is that we're not hearing planned for six months. We're hearing the first thing we heard was it's going to be two weeks. So we made a decision to stay in those two weeks and try to keep the rituals of school, even though school doesn't work, mm -hmm. because we're like, it'll support him in going back. Well, those two weeks were hell. <laughs> they were hell. All that coming. Yeah. And, and, and in all fairness, I, I get why they were hell. Like, I didn't want to Devon doing the things that we were doing. We were doing that because, again, we were weighing our options. It was a it was a strategic choice. Then when we heard it was extended another two weeks, we didn't even wait for it to be another two weeks, another two weeks. We were like, okay, we're stopping school. Okay. And we asked, we said, so tell us what the outcomes are. Tell us what the outcomes are so that we know when to use the resources of teaching, of online teaching, when we know how to do, supplement it ourselves. Like, we'll, just tell us what our child is expected to know and do as a result of the virtual learning. And we'll come up with a plan. And I know not every family gets to do that, right? But I do think that every family deserves to hear the outcome is not to go through so many classes. The outcome is not to go through so many worksheets. But the outcome is that we're practicing for X, Y, or Z. And to this day, we can't get that outcome. 
And, and these are people that care about our family, and it, this is a bureaucratic problem. And to this day, we also can't get assurances that um, when day one of the fourth grade starts, they're not picking up at day one of the fourth grade, making the assumption that kids have picked up the second semester. So we're forced to play a game that we know isn't going to work. And when Devon and I, when Devon is in the class, and we see him looking at his friends, and these are reminders that in his mind, people might not be there, people might die. He's really freaking out. We're keeping him from the news, but he's having nightmares that we're both dying, right? And he's freaking out. And so every time he's in the class, we literally see him melting before our eyes, and we're trying to figure out how do we keep tethered to what might be a high-stakes um, assessment of his intelligence in six months to stopping the harm that's happening before us. So we're in a, a tumultuous place that we're trying hard to manage that my heart breaks when I think about families don't, that don't even have the resources that we have of flexible time, of two parents, of education backgrounds, et cetera, like how this is being read when either families or educators are just reading behaviors and not the system of, of dynamic. And so that's, that's breaking my heart. Oh. Well, let, let, let me say first and foremost that my heart is extended to you and I just feel um, what you're struggling with from the standpoint that the stakes to some degree are high because of the level and what Devon is at right now, as far as this third to fourth grade, I have the even privilege of having a first grader. Right. And I'm not saying that first grade, I mean, first grade is important, but what I'm saying is, is that this idea of assessing where you are takes a whole different, as we know, beast as we go and matriculate into higher grades. Um, so what you're wrestling with now, that's just the, 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 the practical pragmatic side. And then in addition to having all of the heaviness of what young people are experiencing and schools should be a place that they in collaborative collaboration with their peers process and meaning make some of the things that they're experiencing. And we know that our schools are still trying to figure even that out. You know, there's all of this emphasis on social emotional learning. And I think it, and, and we're still in this process of figuring it out. Right. But it's not working for people who are trying to really process heavy things and who have previously processed some of the most atrocious things in their life. We are we are as a as a school systems, as, as schools, districts and systems where we're, we're, we're failing our young people at, 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 at that. Um, um, so I just want to extend serious, sincerely, like my, my heart is extended to to. Uh, what you and Gary are experiencing right now, because that's that's heavy. That's 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 heavy. Um, for Ella, um, it's really interesting. We move to the suburb out of um, Chicago with my partner, Danny, black woman, attorney who grew also grew up in the suburbs of Illinois who put high value in suburban education. <laughs> Let's just put it that way. And um, I, I, I understood that there was a number of games that we really didn't want to play within the district, to be honest with you. Um, and it's, it's not 
to say that there's not amazing schools. There are amazing schools in CPS. There are. Um, but you also have to fight in a different way to get into those schools. And I kind of wanted her to experience not seeing her parents make a bunch of moves um, just to get her into the quote unquote right school. Mm-hmm. Um, instead, I wanted her to have the experience that I had, which was I walked to school and that is my school. There's a certain sense of identity and community that comes along with that, that I was kind of looking forward to. But I want to go, before I go to the, her actual public school experience, I want to say that we moved to the suburb when she was um, three. And so for her two preschool years, um, she was at a play-based learning community. It was a small community, um, diverse community um, that really catered to seeing the child for all of the complexities that the child might bring. And I would say that there there were some tensions even there that were cultural tensions there. But nevertheless, I honestly felt that they saw Ella. They when, and when they talked, when we had these conferences and meetings, it, they, they weren't talking from a chart of here's where her progress is. They were like, here's what Ella is experiencing. Here is what we want to work with with Ella as far as she her growth and development. Like those conversations were amazing. Mm. I only wanted to bring that into this conversation is because I didn't know that I may have been doing – I wouldn't say that we were doing more harm than good, but we just didn't know what it would be like then to have that experience for two years and then abruptly switch to the traditional um, public school um, structures, right? So the great thing is, is that kindergarten, kindergarten is is not a bad place to be for, for most for most folks, right? For most folks, there's still a lot of this. Uh, let me. It's, it's it's not it's it's not about the structure. It's not about the uh, measurement of where you are. It's more about like, you know, you exploring your own, your, your, your own creativity and, and whatnot. And I, and I thought that that was good, but what I'm noticing for this year, pre COVID, which is her first grade year is that, um, she, um, well, what, 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 what I, I, we're just flowing with this thing here. What is it? What is our stance around four letter words here? Because I want to be really real about what 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 she didn't say. <laughs> I, I always heard you get more points the more letters. So, go. <laughs> um, so she called bullshit really quickly. I think when she got to first grade, she called BS. She she did, and I, and and obviously she did, she she's a beautiful kid who doesn't use that language, and and, and we would not obviously promote that. She didn't do it through her words. She did it through her actions. Immediately, she's saying that these folks are no longer seeing me. <laughs> uh, this is about me sitting down and doing what I'm told to do. And guess what, folks? I don't work that way. <laughs> <laughs> so my thinking – so so, and here's the interesting thing that – you know, we've obviously gone through a full semester of her having to adjust for her pushing back on this adjustment that she felt that she needed to make. Um, and I think partly to please her parents. Right. Um, and then this great interruption happened and I call it a great interruption. Mm-hmm. Right. Because instead of me looking at this as this, the COVID-19 as um, something that is just like uh, uh, um, um 
me not being able to do business as usual. Business as usual wasn't really working for my kids. So good. I was great. I'm thankful. All right. So I'm thinking this is an opportunity for us to say, well, how would you want to experience school? Right. But what I didn't think about was it isn't as though we just changed the scene, kind of what you just named. The scenery now is the home. We didn't change necessarily the structures or expectation for what it is that she's supposed to do within her education process. So we too have been struggling with finding this balance between we know that you are a person who loves to interact with people. The way in which you vibe and you learn is by talking and by engaging with folks. Mm -hmm. And much of the work that you're being asked to do is to be in isolation. She's an only child. Mm -hmm. Right. Yeah. And, um, we, and through practice of what's expected of her to, you know, produce a report for measurement is, is, is not the way in which she wants to learn. So we're kind of replicating the same thing, but yeah. I, the, the difference is it's a little bit harsher because she no longer has her peers, her peers too. And let me just be frank and clear, her peers that she was engaging with to feed herself was the same thing that we were getting calls home about, about, you know, oh, I really wish that she would just focus. And I mean, because that's because you have her sometimes literally in this box to say, yo, you, she can't leave this box uh, yeah. to, to do that. And so I don't, I don't want to replicate that. Um, but one thing is I find so interesting about my first grader who is the like, – I know every kid, every parent thinks that their kids – like my first grader is super smart. The mm. thing is that she, she's able to find out the cra cracks in the system and exploit them faster than I ever was. <laughs> so her biggest crack that she's exploited now is that she's like, wait a minute. I was at school for eight hours. The work you're giving me is not that. <laughs> I want to play Legos. If I do this quickly, then I can get to what I want to do. And we're okay with that right yeah. now. Yeah. The only problem becomes, again, she's not loving learning. She's just doing tasks. The, the, yeah. Well, I think we need to, I think we can't put a, a label like that on our children. When we say they're not loving learning, I think we have to be the subject of those sentences. We ah. are not providing love-worthy learning to our children because our kids are learning all the freaking time. True. True that. Yeah. All the time. You just said it. You just said it. She figured out the system, right? <laughs> she did. Yeah. We got to figure out a way to put them on our payroll because they get it faster than we do. They get, they're teaching us like they're like, amen. Amen. Yep. You're absolutely, and I really appreciate that reframing because she is always learning. Mm -hmm. And what I love about her is that she learns for her purpose. So that is a love. She's learning for her own purpose. That's right. I need to get to my Legos faster. If I do this, then I get to right. faster. <laughs> so she's already got logic models down. <laughs> exactly. And it takes some of us four years of paying high amounts of money to get those together. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> you know, it's really interesting. As you're saying this, it's coming up for me like, I'm not saying this is the strategy we should use, but here's some data that we're doing it wrong. One of the things we continuously heard at school was that it was hard for Devon to stay on task. Like you said, they get put in this box. They're not, they're not being given a, an environment that works for them. And so instead of it being, we're not providing the environment that Devon needs to do his learning, it's he's not on task, right? 
because he's like, I'm not going to do it this way. One of those things is reading. Now, Devon also brilliant. Like we sit with him and his thinking is so complex and deep and his ability is incredible. And so what he's missing is that practice time because it's happening in a way that rubs him the wrong way. And so when we decided to stop school as is, meaning that everything that is a structured ritual, unless we know the purpose of it, unless we know the purpose of it, it's optional for him. Right. And we're like, okay. And, and, I, I'm sure you're going through the same thing, but as an educator, right? The idea that we're going to deprioritize what we see as a construct of education is painful because this is what we're we're like. We got to educate. We got to educate. So when we, Gary and I, have really been trying to say we're going to stop school, we're going to stop school, and we got to figure out a different way of educating, and we don't have the answers. The irony is that he's doing more education, more learning, and quite frankly, more school. So. He pushed back on reading because it had to be in this way at this time under this construct, etc. As an example, yesterday, because this is what is he turning to when he needs soothing? Reading. What what is he turning to when he needs soothing? His math puzzle book. He is doing more math and more reading on his own time than under the structured time. That's great data. Yeah, but he still fights it under the structure time. Yeah. So it's about pedagogy. It's not about skill. It's not about content. It's like, stop forcing this down my throat sideways, you know? And now the problem is he shouldn't be in charge of figuring that out. We should know better and, and provide that support and opportunity. But he's, he's, he's taking care of us. Yeah. So this, so it, I, it, this is this is this is this is why we do this. It's so interesting. I was wondering why Ella got so amped about phonics because every day there's some new phonics lesson. Yeah. I was like, what is going on? What is going on with this phonics thing? Because you're always like, Daddy, let's do phonics. And I was like, oh, okay, great. We'll do phonics. Okay. And I was like wondering why is that the thing that stands out? Because I don't know. Personally, I don't love the idea. I know it's very important, like going through phonics with the first grader. But then I thought I had to step back and think about it. She liked it so much because you know my love of hip hop, right? Yeah, yeah, yeah. And so what I was doing was when we were rhyming the different words, I was just like, let's make a rap. Let's do it. And I didn't know how much joy she found in that. And what she was basically saying to me was when we do it this way, yeah. I'd much rather do it versus there was one time, one time. I'm like, oh, you love like, well, let me say the story that there was one time. I was busy trying to figure and navigate how we do this balance, right, of yeah. professional and whatnot and a, a, a professional versus teaching and all the different hats we have to wear right now. Yeah. And I was busy. I'm for, I, and this is, this is bad, but I was busy and I was like, let's just get to phonics. Yeah, yeah. She had a different expectation. <laughs> she fought hard. She fought yeah. hard, right? And I said, well, you love phonics. <laughs> oh. <laughs> oh, I'm so slow I'm, sometimes. I'm not, I'm not <laughs> I just didn't understand my our daughter's language, what happens sometimes. She didn't say, I love phonics. I love the way we do phonics. Yeah. Not yeah. Who the hell loves phonics? I gotta do phonics. I just love the way we were doing it. That is so good. <laughs> so my, my slow self had to be like, oh, yeah, that was what it was. I get it now. <laughs> that is so good. 
<laughs> yesterday, Devon had a, you know, because th this is such chaos we're living in. So when Devon first uh, joined our family, um, Nightmares has been a recurring piece of his narrative. And so we've tried multiple ways of supporting him. And one of them years ago was to introduce him to soft jazz, because we felt like to have really banging music, lots of lyrics, messages we don't know is not going to help him to sleep. So we introduced him to soft jazz. And at first he was appreciative of it, but then it became uncool somewhere. And I and so so every time I was like, let's do soft jazz now. Let's do soft jazz now. So yesterday he's in the office and he had his headphones on while I was on a Zoom call. And when we were done, he said, so I was playing some soft jazz. <laughs> I really like it. I really like it. And all through dinner, he was like just mimicking the, the music he heard. And I'm like, I, I just got to get out of the way sometimes. Yes. Like we can't not take responsibility. We can't not hold a bird's eye view. Yes. But we're trying to, I, I just think that if we're actually trying to control the learning of our children at this time in particular, at this time in particular, yep. it's not going to feel good because I think I wonder how many, I think our kids want to know that we have control and we're going to keep them safe. But how many of them are also needing some level of control and not just to be blindly led somewhere because it relates to safety for them? Absolutely. And I think that that is what our children are asking us to do. Obviously, with interpersonal communication and developmentally where they're at, how can they say, hey, dad, please get out the way so you can hear me? Mm -hmm. And mm -hmm. I think that that's what getting out the way allows us to do. I think we always want to fight hard to listen. But when I got out the way, I could hear differently what she was saying. <laughs> and like I said, I'm making the assumption that what you like and don't like, that was really, really, really not my, that's not my, I never even treated my students that way that I'm going to impose what I think that you like and that you don't like. I try to listen and really hear what you're telling me about what you like and what you don't like. And I think that that's the important part about it is that getting out of their way so you can really hear what is it that they really want and, and not take those moments when they're pushing back as to be so absolute, like they don't like this thing. It's just at that moment in time, it's yeah. not the way in which I, if you hear me, if you get out of my way, it's not really speaking to what I'm, my needs are right now. Yeah. I have a question for you as a black man, um, a, who was a black boy, who is a black dad. As I listen to you, if I stay in the professional realm, I'm like, yeah, that makes total sense. And I actually think I was good at, as a teacher. I was good at that. As a leader, I felt like I was fairly good at that, where I was like, I'm not going to let harm happen, but I feel good about being able to have people make their mistakes and all. And this is painful for me. First of all, it's painful to admit, even though it feels obvious, it's also just painful for me to feel. Um, but when Devon joined our family and the love of family settled in and knowing and witnessing every day the unnecessary harm he is experiencing every single day, I am finding myself with a new challenge to wrestle with, which is that good practice of letting people make mistakes and, and trusting people and, and getting out of the way. 
and this idea of not wanting to see another another moment, another second of unnecessary harm happen. And I'm finding myself being more uh, protective, more of a lion over a den than I ever thought I would be, in particular because of what I've experienced and what I know to be the experience of Devon as a black boy in school and in society, but in particular in school. And and it's taken everything for me just to say this calmly because I have so much emotion around this. And I'm wondering, is that just something in, in your identity and in your community that you just grow up with negotiating and formulating? Or is this uh, as jarring um, uh, when it's real? I'm going to respond and I just going to have to respond and just not even preface. It's both um, in this regard. Um, I think, let me, let, let me say as a black man who was raised by a black mother, there was a lot of hidden curriculum in our house that I'm now understanding. Some people would assess that hidden curriculum as being harsh. I understand my mom is awesome, but she also parented out of fear. Yeah. And I can't blame her. I'm not going to judge her for that fear because she saw and understood coming from Jim Crow South what happens to black boys and black men when they are exposed to this extremely racist and violent society um, and with the unintended consequences of just being a black boy. So for what I, what I, what I learned from her parenting is that there's some level of just anxiety, a level of fear that is going to reside and you cannot judge or be really harsh on yourself on how you react based upon that feeling of fear, right? Um, have to be forgiving of yourself. And you might not always get it right, but what you're doing is out of the space of love is really trying to navigate, negotiate what's going to be the best way for me to pass down both that explicit and express curriculum that was in my household and the hidden curriculum, right? Um, and so there was times where I felt like, you know, you're limiting me and there's, you know, I'm there's a teenager, right? Like you're, you're not letting me. And I now understand what, you know, where, where, where she was, she was, she was coming from. Um, but now in this position and role as, as a, as a father, one thing I have to say is that having a black daughter is not, um, how do I say this? My my anxieties on what it means to interact with my, my anxieties around um, what my nephews are experiencing are different even from my anxieties of what I'm experiencing with my daughter. So I just I want to say that I think that I feel that the stakes have been are, are higher and I've experienced that the stakes are somewhat higher because it's I genu there's a historical um, um, legacy about killing both the bodies and spirit of black men in this country. Like that is very real. And I think there's a, there's, there's a lot of institutional structures that are even put in place for that as, as, as we know. So 
I, that isn't to say that, that it's not absent in my daughter's life. But what I'm trying to say is that I always think that my when I when I interact with my nephews, I know that I'm operating from a different standpoint and different perspective than I am with my daughter. Even I can even feel it. So I don't necessarily I can't I wish I could say, well, here is what I find confidence in. But what I'm thinking is, is it's more about me saying that the space in which I'm approaching, I'm faithful that eventually you'll understand why I talk when I'm why when I talk to my nephews, I'm saying things very sternly about like, here's what I'm gonna need you to do and how to how to navigate. Here's what's acceptable and what's not acceptable. And it's not because I want to limit, it's more because I this they're going to have to understand the harsh realities of this world, but I don't want the, 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 their, their understanding to come at the greatest cost ever. Yeah, I appreciate their that. body and spirit. I appreciate that. Yeah. And it's making me think about, I mean, you know that we have strategically um, asked our black family and friends to be present for this very reason, because also where that message comes from, is also influential. And so I, I'm deeply appreciative of that message. I also feel a responsibility right now to speak to anyone who might listen to this recording um, and and share identity with me. It's I want to be really clear that because I know you and I know this topic and you know that we're talking about and all, you're not creating, when you talk about that difference, you're not creating a false dichotomy of whether or not we should be giving attention to black boys or black girls. You're not giving a false dichotomy as to, you know, of uh, who's got it worse, black boys or black girls, or any, you know, or anyone, right? That you're talking about the unique differences require unique responses. And I, I feel a responsibility to say that out loud yes. because I think my people, people in my skin frequently are looking for the quick answers and the reductionist approaches. And I think, there's a danger of someone saying our black girls are okay. It's just our black boys we have to worry about. And you're not saying that for a second. And, nope. I, and I need to say that. Nope. The complexities are completely different and the complexities need to be approached completely different. We cannot lump the two together. They both, they're both, they're both complex and we have to really isolate. I think in our, in, in, in our conversations moving forward, I would love to spend time being a, a black man who was once a black boy. Like I would love to talk about the complexities of just what does it mean to be that identity and what is, what is, um, what I wish I could – now I can say what I wish I could have expressed as my needs that either I wasn't able to because of structures that were there or I just didn't have the understanding and, and, and awareness that I have now of what, what I experienced. Right. And again, I'm going to keep throwing this in there, not only because of what structures weren't there but also because of what barriers or structures were there. Yeah, uh, that's right. <laughs> there's a design component here. Yep. Yeah. Absolutely. So, we're coming up to the 45-minute mark, and I think that's going to be a, a great pausing place for us. We have about two and a half minutes. I'm wondering if each of us might want to think about, like, what's a, I don't know, is there a closing thought you have, or are we, what are we taking away, or, you know, um, and I know we, we sometimes do this more in a different way, but for the sake of pressing that little red button. Um, <laughs> yeah. So, so, um, that last question that you posed, I'm going to sit with, um, I appreciate that. That to me was an invitation 
to really, really explore how my identity as a black boy and the way that I was raised is showing up now. I don't get that those gifts too often. And so I want to say, I want to return back to that question too. I want to, or, or even if, even if it's something that we return back to at some, some, um, level of, of routine or some, 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 like, let's return back to that question because, um, that was a gift. Mm-hmm. Um, albeit it's stirring up some emotions. Yeah. It's good. It's good. And I want to sit, I want to sit with that. So I'm walking with that and that, that's so I'm walking away with that. And this is just a reinforcement of why this conversation has just been a reinforcement of why I'm glad we're sitting down to do this because, this is it, it, it feeds like given these times right now where we're sheltered in and having to navigate and negotiate so much and even determine what are our priorities at any given moment right now. Right. Um, knowing what we know, hold, hold true to the whole highest priority. This has been self-care in a way that it always is. But it's, it's just I really appreciate um, us holding this space. So that's that's what that's what I'm, I'm, I'm carrying right now. Yeah. Yeah. I think what I'm walking away with, um, I'm walking away with a sort of an itch to scratch. Um, after, after listening to you sharing your experience, I'm sitting here and it's, it's, it's sort of scratching at a piece of me that maybe I've been hiding a little bit. And so I want to sit in the question or the inquiry around where as fathers of black children, what is needed and where do we take time for that? What is needed if and when we need to feel fragile, scared, um, weak within our strength or strong within our weakness? I mean, there are so many feelings that are nagging at me. and Maybe it's just me, but there's so many feelings that are nagging at me that are um, the opposite of what I am either supposed to project because of the construct of male, uh, being male in this country, or what I believe is the need on behalf of the safety of my child, mm-hmm. that um, I'm wondering where to go to just be the other, um, if that's inside me, so that it doesn't creep up or surprise me or take energy at all, any energy away from our commitment to our children. Okay. So. Thank you, Derek. Thank you, Greg, as always. Mm. All right. All right. You have been listening to Dadding Black Kids with Adelric McCain and Gregory Peters. If you have comments, questions, or suggestions, For Adelric and Gregory, email them to dbk at sfcess.org.